Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization which exists to connect the Christian faith to the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones. I'll be your host. And in just a moment, I'll be talking with CJ Green about this weekend's Weekender. Self-justification occurs when people lie to themselves to avoid the realization they did anything wrong in the first place. Uh, a couple years ago, I found myself on Christmas Eve, the day and in, in the afternoon in traffic court. It, I was appealing a ticket in Philadelphia, one which in all honesty, I was guilty of the violation. It was running a stop sign, but I figured I'd take my chances. And it was so strange was the judge who was so joyful. And actually, a couple cases in it came out. He was a pastor, I guess, part-time in the weekends. But this judge was so gleeful. And as he, in every case, he would quickly, about a minute in, get the person to, in most everybody was pleading guilty and throwing themselves on the mercy of the court. He'd get them to admit their guilt. And then it's the second they talked about their culpability he gave them clemency and dismissed the case every single time except one before me. I don't know how things worked out afterwards, but I'm sure the same way. But a few cases before mine, there was a young man who pled not guilty. And the judge said, look, you're guilty. I know what you did. You, let, you, pull, you pulled into this lane, which was a no-turn lane, and made the turn anyway. I've seen tons of cops cite people for this at Roosevelt Boulevard. You did it. Just admit it. Admit it. He, we're all shocked he wouldn't admit it. He was the only one that, wasn't, that didn't get off scot-free that day. So the moral of the story, and by the way, I got off as well, and I stammered and was pardoned. But the moral of the story is always go to traffic court on Christmas Eve. <laughs> but, but on a slightly more serious note, Self-justification occurs when people lie to themselves to avoid the realization that they did anything wrong in the first place. How often does self-justification, the temptation to it in living our lives as self-justifiers, keep us from so many good things in life? I mean, from getting clemency on a speeding ticket to getting real grace and forgiveness and hope in a relationship or from accepting a a failure, the acceptance of which might liberate us to and for a new beginning in life, something that could really be a severe mercy and maybe even a sweet one. 
here with CJ Green and we are going to talk for a few minutes about the weekender. Now, CJ, I want to thank you not just for in general all the work you do for Mockingbird, but I have already sent the Molly Ortberg talk, the founder of the Toast to two people since you sent it to me this morning. Uh, actually two young women I care about very much. One is my sister-in-law, another is a good friend who moved out of state but used to be a part of our church and my wife and I very much care about. I found this talk inspiring and I found it encouraging and I and I wanted some people in my life to benefit from from it. So tell me, what drew you to it? I mean, this is the woman's by the way, it's her first talk ever, right? Yeah, it is. Um I mean, what's great about her and, and the toast itself and that talk in particular is that she's just so funny. Um, makes her really approachable. Um, and yeah, since it's her first talk, she's just like very honest, um, just pretty endearing. Yeah. I, some of this stuff, this, what's great, right, is she actually says that uh, the, the performance, here's her jokingly she says this kind of tongue-in-cheek right but here's your plan for success don't go to an impressive school or have a good job work at yelp for three weeks embrace your embrace your death and do your best that's what life is mostly all about probably (laughs) right and she talks about how she moves across the country to get she got a job at the atlantic right and quit three weeks into it she just has this way of like expressing that she's got it together, but she definitely doesn't have it together. And it's like this really comfortable, approachable paradox. Yeah. She says that she's so nervous and she says, you guys, so what she's learning, uh, you quote here, you guys can mess up so much and still turn out. Okay. And I don't think I'm going to puke. I'm feeling better. (laughs) She thought she was going to throw up. She was so nervous. Yeah. Yeah. The whole time. But I think that isn't that something that all of us need to be need to be reminded of that we can always kind of start over again at the beginning. Yeah, definitely. It's like with with her humor, it's sort of a reminder of of good news. Um, she talks a lot about yeah, particularly in that talk. There's a funny section where she's addressing uh, like this section on the blog about how in Western art there's this trope of uh, medieval women listening to men play music and like, yeah, that was so, that was so terrific. So you, and you can go to the weekend or find the link to the talk, which I would highly recommend, especially if you have a young person in your life, you know, that just finished college or is in and, and is sort of wondering what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. I feel like there's no better thing than this piece to show that, you know, grace, humor, and an openness to the future really can make a huge difference in your own journey for self-discovery. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think it says a lot that, well, first of all, she comes from a very feminist perspective in a lot of her posts, um, but that's not what's particularly interesting to us. It's just her openness and her transparency and, um, yeah, her honesty about 
whatever situation she's addressing. And it just says a lot about, about that blog and about her style that it not only speaks to, to young women, but also to men like myself and um, the other guys here at Mockingbird. We just, we keep up with all of her posts, um, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I found her enrapturing. I mean, it was very like, yeah, she's very, she's very listenable and she's got a, she's got a great kind of message and medium. Now from that on to something I found super interesting in my own podcast, new persuasive words. We talk about stuff like this a lot. This article you said, was it, is it, it's in time magazine, but it could have been in mockingbird. And it's the title is why we lie to ourselves when we make mistakes to preserve our belief that we are good people. It's just so Mockingbird-esque, um, talking about self-justification, self-righteousness. Um, it really addresses what is at the heart of the Mockingbird message that, um, yeah, we, we sort of pile these justifications on top of ourselves to hide the fact that, you know, maybe after all, we're actually not good people um, at our honest core. Yeah, self-justification occurs when people lie to themselves to avoid the realization that they did anything wrong in the first place. Right. And they, and they talk in the opening of that passage about how like it's natural to, to hide from other people, to cover up your mistakes, um, to make yourself look better in front of other people. But the more insidious aspect of it is that we actually do this to ourselves and we're trying to fool ourselves into thinking that we're better people. And it's not just a facade for other people, but it's also, um, yeah, we're deluding ourselves. Yeah, you say that you you point out that problems. I mean, oftentimes when we characterize like the world and its the, its moral problems and complexity, we think about problems arriving arising when bad people do bad things. But really, maybe the massive evil is when good people in, engage in the justification about the bad things they do in order to preserve their belief that they're good people. And you also have a piece here in the weekender about internet addiction, which is pretty interesting that some people are paying $30,000 a year to get unhooked from internet addiction. Yeah, that was just a really cool article because that I would definitely recommend it. Um, just sort of illustrates all these different, um, treatment facilities for what's being coined as internet addiction um, for, for young adolescents, for adults, people of all walks of life. Um, and they can be like summer camps or they can be um, schools, uh, just different sorts of treatment facilities. And yeah, like you said, people are paying up to $30,000 $30, a year, just like college tuition, just to get a break from the internet. Uh, just, yeah, just crazy. Uh, I'd pay $30,000 a year for better download speeds. Maybe I'm part of the main way. You might have a problem if that, that, that. Yeah. Which is, it's kind of the tricky part of the issue is like for, for me, for myself and for you, for a lot of people, internet is the basis for livelihood. And so it's, it becomes tricky if you're trying to label internet use as addiction, but it depends on the situation for sure. Yeah. Mallory Ortberg said the internet is where she lives. You know, like it's one of the, really? yeah, 
Yeah, so it's an interesting. Now, okay, the thing that I think is maybe most interesting about what you highlight is an interview, uh, an article rather, by Philip Yancey, and it's about prayer. And he talks about Jesus unanswered prayers. And he kind of concludes when Jesus prays that they all may, that all of his followers would be one. He concludes he he categorizes this as one of the Bible's unanswered prayers. And you have a different kind of conclusion than he does. Can you say something about your take on his take? Well, so I really, I mean, obviously, I really respect Philip Yancey. I think he's an amazing writer. Um, but just reading through his conclusion about the unanswered prayers, he kind of um, had this encouragement that if God's not, doesn't seem to be answering our prayers, um, it might be a sign that, like, we could take on that responsibility for ourselves. And, for example, um, yeah, the, the, dis- the disunity of the church might be a good example for that. Like, Jesus prays um, that his church would be one, and we've failed at that pretty much the beginning of the church um, with over 45,000 Christian denominations in the world, probably more than that. Um, but, but Yancey's idea seems to be that like if God isn't, isn't answering our prayers, um, that maybe we could take on that responsibility for us to participate and take, um, take up a role and, um, yeah, the answering of those prayers. But, that's, that's just kind of a tough sell for me and probably for a lot of us who have been disillusioned by the actions of the church and just the repeated failure that we all experience in our own lives. Um, but but what I find encouraging about, about the article is, first of all, Yancey's unflinching take at like the numerous unanswered prayers in the and, and even from Jesus himself. So if God's prayers aren't even being answered, um, I think for me, that's an encouragement, honestly, because you, you take, um, camaraderie and you, like re- recognize that we have, we, uh, belong to an empathetic God who, um, experiences these same things as us, the disappointment, um, you know, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying to take this cup, like that prayer goes unanswered. And, um, yeah, so he's an empathetic guy. And that's, that's what I find encouraging about that article. Yeah. I love what you've written that, that what I take is God, is God's camaraderie that even his own prayers don't get answered. He understands our frustration at the silence from above. And his grace abounds, of course. Yeah, I think that's extremely, I think that's a meaningful sentiment. And that's the kind of expression that would bring me to pray. Yeah, and I I mean, I don't want to be too, like, final with this thought. I'm still in process, but it seems that God's faithfulness isn't, revealed and like the frequency with which we see our prayers answered. It's more about um, the unstoppable grace that he gives us. And that's, 
pretty, um, yeah, it's unstoppable. <laughs> that grace is not just unfathomable, it is unstoppable. And thank God for that. Well, thanks for doing the Weekender, and I'd encourage everyone listening, if you're wanting to feed and fuel your internet addiction, there is lots of material in the weekend for you. Thanks, CJ. In a recent issue of Modern Reformation, David Zoll, Mockingbird's director, has a wonderful piece about pop culture Jesus. The piece concludes with the following words. In sum, there's much to emulate in the Jesus we find in popular culture. Maybe even respect, but there is curiously little to crucify. And yet, oddly enough, he still has our attention. Twist and turn his likeness as we may. Make him over and repackage all we like. We cannot seem to rid ourselves of this son of man. He still looms large. Perhaps there is something hopeful about that. Because someone who goes to the New Testament looking for hipster Jesus, a wrestling coach Jesus, is going to find something else in there, something that may detain them. A Jesus who does not leave sinful men and women to their portrayals of him. Thanks be to Pops for that. Cavalry, a cavalry.
The song says, the cavalry, I heard them sing. You know, a lot of folks were standing around cavalry that day. But it was just hanging on the cross I had at Calvary. He was carrying the sins of the world at Calvary. You heard him say, Case this miss. Case this miss. I'm going to save you. Case this miss. You've been 